0: OK, so we'll start. Uh, just a quick announcement. If you want to look at your midterm one uh, answers and the key to the midterm one, uh, there'll be an exam viewing today in LSB 213 between uh, 1030 and 2 in the afternoon. It's optional. You don't, don't feel you need to come. Uh, I typically kind of take on the order of two students at a time. So if you get there and there's people just waiting, just Line up, but bear in mind, at 2 o'clock, I have to, I have to wrap it up. Um, okay, so we'll start a little bit where we left off last class. Uh, this idea of how to repair... So I'll go over this quickly, because we went over this last class. Uh, this is how we repair mismatches. There's different types of repair pathways that have evolved to handle different types of, of errors in DNA or DNA damage. So this is in the case of a mismatch. If you've got a mismatch, it's going to cause uh, basically what we call... A, a distortion or a bubble in the uh, DNA double stranded helix because you are going to have two bases that are not paired with one another uh, the right way, right. So, it is going to be a basically a distortion here. The question is, so one of the, so the, there are enzymes that will recognize that, recognize that distortion and bind to the DNA to try to fix it. The question that you have to bear in mind is, how does the cell know which is the right or the wrong strand? And we talked about that a little bit last class also, this idea that uh, when DNA is replicated, uh, the newly synthesized DNA will not be methylated on the nucleotides, but uh, as the DNA sits around in the cell, there are methylation enzymes that come along and at certain sequences methylate the nucleotides. And so what you're going to have after DNA replication is one methylated strand and one unmethylated strand. And the, um, The cell uses that to be able to tell which is the newly synthesized strand, and it presumes that the newly synthesized strand is the one that is there, right? After time, both strands become methylated, and now you can't tell the difference between which was the parental strand and which is the new strand. But at least in the time in the window shortly after DNA replication, you can tell that difference. So you've got this mismatched base pair. These proteins, um, mu-S and mu-L in an ATP-dependent reaction will recognize that. Uh, mismatch, that distortion in the helix. Now the question is, which strand is uh, is the new strand? It starts pulling in the DNA from this side and pulling in the DNA from this side until it finds a methylation on one of the strands. This protein mutate then comes in, and it will recognize which strand is methylated, and then the methylated strand, it makes a cut in the unmethylated strand presuming that is the, is the wrong one. Now you're gonna have an exonuclease that comes in and Pacmans along here in a five prime to three prime direction and it's hopefully gonna go past this bulge. And then once it does that, Paul III can come in and basically use the three prime hydroxyl here to template new synthesis through here and fill that space in. People ask me what happens if, it doesn't, if the exonuclease doesn't go far enough, it's a good question. It's not clear to me that the exonuclease recognizes the mismatch. My my thinking would be that if it has to go too far, uh, then it may not catch that, but then the mismatch would persist, right? It's basically going to still be there, and then it's going to recruit this in again, and it's going to have a new chance to do it. So it may keep doing that until it either gets past the mismatch or, unluckily, the methylation comes along and it methylates both strands, and now you can't tell the difference anymore, and that mutation is basically going to be passed to one, so this eventually is going to be the DNA for, uh, that's going to template DNA replication for two new cells. One cell will have the wild type sequence, the other cell will have the new sequence, and if that mutation is detrimental, then that'll be a problem. So uh, other types of uh, repair we'll talk over briefly. You got base excision repair. Sometimes uh, you accidentally make uracil right, in DNA, which is a problem. You're not supposed to have that. You're not supposed to have deoxyuracil. You're only supposed to have normal uracil, the RNA version of of uracil. But sometimes you make uh, deoxyribose uracil, and that's a problem. You're not supposed to have... Uh, U in uh, in DNA, and so here's a U base that got uh, put in. Often, what happens is uh, so why is this U paired with this G? This is not covered on the slide, but I'll just tell you. Um, if you look at the structure of U, it's the same as the structure of C, except C at the N four position has a uh, NH two, and at on U, sorry. N4 or N2. it's N2, sorry. Uh, but anyways, the point is that there's an NH2 group in, in cytidine that is not there in, in uridine. And what you can get is this spontaneous, what we call deamination, a loss of an amine group. Just It's a chemical reaction that happens at a very low rate, but it does happen on occasion. And so when C deaminates, it deaminates into U. So this used to be a GC base pair. So in this example, uh, you had a GC base pair that deaminated into U, and that's a problem, because this used to be... Yeah, it's really hot in here, huh? Um, okay. We got the heat on, because it's October, but um, anyway. So this used to be a GC base pair, uh, it deaminated into U, and that's gonna be a problem, because if this strand templates a new DNA strand, when the new strand is made, it's not gonna put in a G here, it's gonna put in an A. Right? If it uses this U as the template for the new strand, well, G doesn't pair with U, A pairs with U. Okay? So you wanna get rid of that U. Basically, when the cell realizes that U is present and the DNA wants to get rid of it. And so there's this enzyme called DNA glycosylase. It's also called uracil glycosylase because it's pretty specific for U's. It recognizes U in DNA. It's called glycosylase because it's breaking the glycosidic bond. It's breaking the bond between the, uh, Nucleotide sugar, the sugar and the base. Okay? So what you end up having is the backbone's still here, the sugar is still here, but the base is missing. So cleave the glycosidic bond between the ribose and the uracil. And so you get what's called, an, in this case, an apurinic or apyridinic site, meaning, uh, so A meaning not, right, so someone who is Upstanding is moral, and someone who's not is amoral. So, amoral would refer to the lack of morals, right? So, apurinic or apyrimidinic would mean the lack of a purine or pyrimidine here. So, we call this. Now, you don't really know. In this case, it lost a pyrimidine, but it whoop. It's it's just, you don't know whether it's apurinic or apyrimidine. It's missing both of them, right? So, it's just an a, We call this an AP site. Okay, it's lacking a purine or pyrimidine in that spot. And then there's this enzyme called AP endonuclease, which recognizes AP spots and makes a cut in the phosphodiester backbone at that space. Okay? And then very similar to how you remove primers in DNA replication, DNA polymerase will come along and use its uh, three prime to five prime exonuclease activity to degrade the DNA in front of this nucleotide and basically fill it in. And when it fills it in, it presumably puts in the right nucleotide again. So you've repaired that back to a C and DNA ligase will fix your NIC. Questions on that? Yeah. Paul in this case it's Paul 1. So in the last example, there was an exonuclease which degraded this. Remember, the DNA-POL3 can't degrade what's in front of it, but POL1 can. But for mismatch repair, there was an exonuclease that degraded that long stretch, and then DNA-POL3 came in and filled it in. That's right. As DNA-POL1 is moving along here and degrading what's in front of it, it's putting in nucleotides behind it, and it presumably puts in the right one. In the previous case, it was Pol3, because it's an exonuclease that removes this bit. I'm speculating now, presumably these proteins recruit an exonuclease that will degrade. Because remember, in this case, when you're, this could be hundreds of nucleotides away. The nearest methylation site may not be where the error is. That's right, it's not Pol1. So an exonuclease comes in, Unnamed, as of right now, unnamed exonuclease comes in. A Pac-Man comes in and degrades all this. And then because there's a big space here, there's not a problem of removing the nucleotides in front of it. Pol3 can come in and fill that in. Okay, But in this case, um, I mean, the nick is right where the problem was. So Pol1, can, Pol1 is not so good at polymerizing DNA over long stretches. It's good for primers, RNA primers, and it's good for little bits. Well, since right here the error is right where the, the NIC happens, well, Paul once evolved to be able to do that. Okay. But on the previous example, that mismatch may be some space removed from where the nearest methylation is. And so that has evolved to bring in an nu- exonuclease, which degrades a whole swath of nucleotides downstream of the NIC, and then Paul 3 just fills it in. The last one I wanna talk about is double-strand break repair. This is quite complex. Uh, We're not gonna go into it so in so much detail. Um, There's a few things I wanna say about it. So, um, first of all, double-strand break repair is very, very bad. It's uh, a major cause of cell death and a major cause of mutations. Uh, Basically, this happens where both strands get broken. Um, Famously, ionizing radiation can do this, so you want to be careful around your exposure to that type of stuff. But um, there are basically two ways to fix a double-strand break. This is the good way, okay? This is double-strand break repair using homologous recombination. The bad way of doing double-strand break repair is that uh, if it can't for some reason do um, homologous recombination... There's another process called non-homologous end joining where the two pieces are just smushed together and ligated. Presuming that in the time that there was a double strand break, there was no exonucleases that came along and nibbled on these ends. If that happens and you smush them back together, well if that was in a place where there was a protein coding gene, that's almost certainly mutated now. Right? You've made a mutation there. But ideally you take advantage of this uh, system. I'm not going to I'd like you to understand it to the degree to which I'm gonna talk about right now. Basically what happens is, uh, to be able to fix this double strand break, remember you've got uh, one copy of your genomic material from mom and one from dad. Let's say this is the dad pair. Uh, Dad's copy of your gene was broken. Well, you've got this wild type piece from mom, right? And so basically what you can do is, Uh, these single-stranded ends that, so there's an exonuclease that comes in and trims uh, around the break, and you get these single-stranded extensions, which then invade. They do a strand invasion into the wild-type copy, or the non-broken copy, and that is used to template DNA polymerase to basically extend off of the... uh, and that's been produced here to basically make a new sequence. Uh, so basically, using the wild-type gene copy, there is DNA synthesis that occurs across the break. Okay, that's the general idea. And then you're going to have basically uh, res- resolution of this uh, the same way you get resolution of all uh, homologous recombination. This is, once you get to this point, this is not so different than what you've come across with respect to just basic homologous rung combination between alleles in your genetics class that allows gene alleles to switch in cells on chromosomes between the mom copy and the dad copy. But the point is that after this is done, you've repaired the, uh, the error, okay? Basically, using the wild type or non-broken copy as the template for the where, around where the break was. Famously, uh, it turned out that this gene. So, it was worked out many years ago that certain families have predisposition to certain diseases like breast cancer, and um, this is this was old school genetic mapping. It took decades. Now. It's something that we could do very quickly using next-generation sequencing, but this was worked out in the 80s, I believe. Uh, Basically using linkage analysis, the same way we do old-school genetics, it was figured out which loci is mutated in families, or one of the loci that's mutated in families that have predispositions to breast cancer. And it turns out that they identified this gene, which they called BRCA1, Um, breast cancer associated gene 1. And and women that have mutations in BRCA1 or BRCA2, there was a subsequent gene that was figured out called BRCA2. These people have a 70 or 80% chance of developing breast cancer in their lifetime. Uh, It turns out that BRCA1 is a gene that is part of this process. BRCA1 is important for double-strand break repair. When you get double-strand breaks, you want to go this way. You want to do double-strand break repair to fix the break because that's going to result in uh, faithful repair, as opposed to what I talked about, non-homologous end joining, which is very mutation-prone. And it's thought that that has to do with why people that have mutations of BRCA1 are predisposed to getting breast cancer. We now know that these genes are very causally linked with breast cancer, and so women in families that have uh, a history of breast cancer will routinely be screened for these genes. Uh, mutations in these genes and if they have mutations in those then they probably want to make some decisions mastectomies these types of decisions that will hopefully prevent them from getting my breast cancer in their lifetime so that was a big advance uh, back when when doing this type of work was very tedious and very difficult So, it's a good question. The question is how does it know that these are normal ends of genes in normal ends of DNA in in humans should have should have telomeres. So, we've we not really covered telomeres. These are basically sequences at the ends of chromosomes that are supposed to be at the ends of chromosomes. So, for two ends that are don't have telomere sequences on them, uh, the cell very quickly realizes that those are likely the two that are supposed to go that are supposed to be put back together and it will use this double strand. Obviously these two ends are gonna be homologous on either side to the wild type copy, the non-broken copy. So this should happen relatively straightforward. On occasion it doesn't happen very well and then you get this backup pathway, this non-homologous end joining which is problematic but better than the cell dying. Although you could argue that it's not. It might be better if just let the cell die. Because um, it's very mutagenic. Mutation So I want to talk a little bit about kind of some of the techniques we do for, we talked about this already a little bit I think in the first section we were talking about proteins and I just want to review a couple things because we may cover some methods that have to do with this. We're going to cover PCR in the next few classes, some other methods. Just make sure you're familiar with these uh, methods before we get into today's lecture. Just two or three slides. So the principle of DNA gel electrophoresis is very similar to the principle of protein gel electrophoresis. Instead of using acrylamide, though, uh, for DNA that's of substantial size, we use agarose. Uh, it's simpler to work with, it's super cheap, um, and it's better for sieving... A, a, DNA, a piece of DNA that's 200 or 300 nucleotides long is quite large, and a DNA, piece of DNA that's thousands of nucleotides is enormous, much bigger than... Your standard protein, okay? Agarose sieves uh, molecules um, more poorly than acrylamide, which is good if you're sieving very large things. So for large pieces of DNA, we use this agarose. It's great, because you can just melt it in the microwave, and then you pour it into a tray, and it solidifies as you let it cool. Um, What you do, you do that in the, so typically where we do vertical gels for proteins, meaning uh, I think if you remember what we talked about last class or a few classes ago, you've got this gel that runs from top to bottom, and the wells are at the top. Uh, Agros gels tend to be horizontal, flat, where the wells are pointing down into the gel. I think you guys have probably done some agarose gels at some point. You load your sample in here, you apply a current. Again, DNA is negatively charged, so it's going to move towards the positive terminal. Okay. And the way we estimate molecular weight of DNA pieces is identical. So the way we did it for proteins, we put in what we call a marker or a ladder. This is something you buy from a company. Typically, people used to make it themselves, but that's ridiculous now when BioRad will make it for you for a couple cents a lane. Uh, basically, you've got a sample of known DNA sizes that you run in a one lane on your gel and that separates from top to bottom. Again, the largest is near the top, the smallest is near the bottom. And the DNA separates, and you run your sample of interest that you don't know the molecular weight of in an adjacent lane, and you see which band it lines up with, and we'll draw a graph. I think you've probably already done this as an exercise in your lab courses, but you can estimate the molecular weight. I'll I'll talk about that on the next slide. One thing that you wanna talk a little bit about is uh, how we see the DNA. Um, There's this chemical called ethidium bromide. Uh, Ethidium bromide is a very, it's got a section of it that's very nonpolar. It doesn't really like being in water. It's somewhat soluble, but it's happier being in a nonpolar environment. So when you put it with DNA or RNA, it likes to stack between the bases. Right? We talked about how the bases are relatively hydrophobic, and so they like to stack on one another to avoid water. Ethidium bromide likes to stack between those bases because it's also uh, nonpolar. And when it does that, it glows, it fluoresces under UV light. So there's actually ethidium bromide all through this gel, all through this lane. Um, But only where the DNA is, is the place where it's it's glowing, right? So you only see signal where the DNA is. And what you can then do is you run your markers onto this, you run, it's a semi-log function, same as we talked about for proteins. Uh, You run your distance migrated on the x-axis, on a log scale you run the fragment size on the y-axis, you drop a graph, you get a straight line, and then what you can do is you can measure the distance of your unknown band from the well, let's say it's here, and then you just go up to your line and you estimate the fragment size. Although we rarely in the lab care so much about getting it to the tens of nucleotides, you're just, typically when you do an experiment in the lab, you're doing a restriction digest or PCR amplification you're expecting a band of around, I don't know, 800 nucleotides, you run a gel, it looks like it's about 800 nucleotides, you say, great, you move on. Any questions on that? I think that's probably pretty standard for you guys. Okay. So uh, we're gonna move into kind of now this flow of genetic information. We've been talking, mainly about DNA up until now, and a bit of the nuts and bolts of DNA, which you'll get into much more detail in 3110, if you take 3110 to a degree that some people might find excessive, but some people think is really cool. Uh, This is more, this section now that we're getting into is more what we're gonna cover in 3130, which I also teach in winter. Uh, We're gonna talk about kind of genetic expression, gene expression and regulation of gene expression. You guys already know about this, this is your standard central dogma of molecular biology, and I alluded to this already, DNA is the storage form of genetic information. Uh, all your cells have reasonably equally, comp- equally uh, comp- complements of DNA, there are some exceptions. Uh, one cell may have a mutation that another cell doesn't have, famously B cells undergo very strange recombination events that make them special, so their DNA will be different. But if you haven't taken immunology, we'll get to that yet, but you can presume that the DNA of your cells is the same across your body. However, the DNA that you want to be expressed, that is the DNA you want encoded into proteins, or DNA that you want to be expressed into a non-coding RNA is gonna be transcribed into RNA by an RNA polymerase. And if it's a coding RNA, that's gonna be translated into proteins, okay? So again, I think you guys are relatively familiar with that. So we're going to talk today mainly about RNA transcription and RNA processing, we'll talk about uh, translation next class. So some principles of uh, RNA transcription. When we make DNA from DNA, we call that replication. You're just making new DNA from old DNA. When we make RNA from DNA, we call that transcription. So you may have come across that term before, to transcribe something. If you were to take my lecture off of Camtasia and decide you're going to write out what I say word for word, um, that would, you would be transcribing the lecture. So it's basically copying what's copying the information, but often in a different way, right? Well that's effectively what's happening here. We are taking the genetic information that's encoded in DNA, and we're transcribing it into a related but different form of genetic information, which would be RNA. Okay, But the language is the same, effectively. The, the sequence is nucleotides in both cases, uh, so uh, you're kind of writing out the same thing, but just a bit differently, which differentiates it from translation where we take this genetic information that's encoded in nucleotides and translate it into a new language. We convert it from nucleotide language into protein language, right? And to do that, we need a translator. We need a nucleic acid protein dictionary for which um, that function's done by a molecule that's both. If you want to translate English to French, you need a book that's both English and French. You need an English-French dictionary. Well, if you wanna translate nucleic acid to protein, you need a molecule that's both nucleic acid and protein, and we'll cover that in the next few lectures, but that molecule is a charged tRNA. It's both nucleic acid, but it also has an amino acid on it, right? So, uh, the general idea of RNA transcription, it's unidirectional. It goes the same, same principle holds as for DNA replication in that it goes in a 5 prime to 3 prime direction. So this is where transcription started. Uh, this is where transcription is at. And again, you're going to be adding new nucleotides onto the 3 prime hydroxyl, okay? Here's the DNA that is the parent, the, this is the basically the double-stranded DNA. There's goes in the 5 prime direction and a 3 prime direction. Importantly, for RNA transcription, you only transcribe one strand. You don't transcribe you, not in DNA replication you're doing both strands. Now they're done by different bits of DNA polymerase, but Uh, In RNA transcription, you're only doing one strand, okay? So this is your RNA transcript. It has the same sequence. Now, first of all, you have to remember that in RNA, all your T's will become U's, right? But other than that, the sequence of the RNA transcript is the same as the sequence of one of the two strands, right? One of the two strands, right, so here's our DNA duplex, this red strand templates the transcription of the RNA the same way one DNA strand templates the replication of another strand during DNA replication, right? So you can imagine that this is the, so it shows here this is the DNA template strand, when the polymerase reads G it's going to put in C, when the polymerase reads C it's going to put in G, it's going to, and it's going to basically read this strand and put in the corresponding RNA sequence with the caveat that it's converting T's into U. So when it reads A, it's not going to put in T. It's going to put in U, right? What that means is that the sequence that's made in the RNA transcript is identical to the other strand, the non- what we what we call the coding strand, the non-template strand. This blue strand up here, right? This blue strand was paired, or it is paired over here. This blue strand is paired with this red strand, right? When it's in nice double-stranded helix. And so the non-template strand has the exact same sequence as the RNA that's being transcribed, with the exception of the A's, the, the T's becoming U's. Right? For that reason, we usually call the non-template strand the coding strand. It's a very convenient strand to look at when we're trying to figure out what RNA sequence has been has been transcribed. Okay? So we call the non-template strand the coding strand. Um, this is the way, It will look on a chromosome. You can have genes on either strand, right? So this gene up here, RNA polymerase would have started here and gone this way until it stopped transcription and then would get off. However, there may be a RNA polymerase recognition sequence down here on the other strand. If that's present here, then RNA polymerase will bind here and transcribe this way until it transcribes this piece of RNA. So genes, transcription units can be on either strand, okay. They can even overlap. I think there is an example here, is there, any, yeah. So there is an example here where this gene goes this way and this gene goes this way and they are actually overlapping genes. Well, that is rare, okay. Obviously, the, uh, especially if, if, if this gene codes for a protein, right. Obviously, the sequence of one gene is going to dictate the sequence of the other one, right? I mean, if you, if, this, if you know this sequence, you also know this sequence. So the likelihood that you're going to make a functional protein going one way and a functional protein going the other way is low, right, because the likelihood that the opposite sequence of a coding sequence for something that's evolved to have function the fact that it just so happens that the complementary sequence also codes for something that's useful is, is not very high. So in general, you don't see this. Uh, you see something more like this. Um, you do get coding overlap in places where gene, uh, like, like nucleotide real estate is at a premium. It's hard to, you gotta fit as many genes as possible into a short stretch of nucleic acid So what you should be thinking about in that sense is a virus. A virus has evolved to be very small, very small genome. Humans, we got all this junk DNA you've heard about, so there's lots of space to stick all your genes wherever you want. So this will be very, two overlapping coding genes like this will be very rare in something like a human, but it happens in things like viruses. As time has come on now, uh, we now are appreciating that uh, you might have, this does happen more often than we thought in humans, not because the other strand codes for a protein, but imagine that this strand codes for a gene that codes for a protein. Often the other side, the other strand is also transcribed, not because it codes for a protein, but because it makes an RNA that has some sort of regulatory function. Maybe that RNA makes double stranded RNA with this one and influences its expression or something. That's something that's very new. That's only come on in the last 5 or 10 years. So, right now, This is the way we used to think kind of transcription works and it still works this way generally if you're looking at where the protein coding genes are, but more so now we believe that there is transcription on the other strand in this region for example, that other strand won't code for a protein but that RNA does may do something. So transcription was figured out in prokaryotes and coli, so we'll cover that first. We talked about this a little bit already. Um, it's more complicated in eukaryotes, but it follows the same principles. So this is the uh, RNA polymerase holoenzyme in E. coli. E. coli only has one RNA polymerase. There's no RNA polymerase 1, 2, and 3 in bacteria. One RNA polymerase does it all. Okay, It's got a beta subunit. A beta prime subunit, those are the big subunits. Um, Sorry, did I say this is the, okay, I'll correct myself in a second, hang on. So this has got a beta subunit, a beta prime subunit, an omega subunit, and two alpha subunits. And we're going to talk about this in more detail in 3130 if you're interested, or if you take that course. You may not be interested, but you may take it still. Um, This is, this I would call not the RNA polymerase holoenzyme, this is the apoenzyme and that should re- recollect back to when we were talking about hemoglobin. What that means is this is the enzyme that's missing something, okay? Uh, the holoenzyme is the enzyme that has everything, and the apoenzyme is the enzyme that's missing something. The thing that this is missing is this sigma subunit, okay? Sigma is a subunit that is not required for transcription um, formally. This will transcribe DNA and RNA chemically, but the problem with this, as we're gonna talk about in the next few slides, This apoenzyme has trouble finding promoters. The sequence that the the polymerase is looking for on the DNA to start transcription is called a promoter. We're going to talk about this in the next few slides. This is looking for a promoter, and in the absence of this sixth subunit, sigma, which will bind to this, it has trouble finding promoters. Sigma helps it find promoters. So it starts transcription at bona fide genes. But sigma is not required, and sigma actually falls off, or it's thought to possibly fall off, after polymerase has found the promoter and started transcribing. So the apo enzyme is sufficient for transcription, but not to start transcription in cells. You need SIGMA to do that. The holoenzyme is capable of actually initiating bona fide transcription at promoters in, in cells. And so here's kind of the idea, okay? Um, I'll cover this in some detail, uh, we spend three lectures on this slide in 31.30, but we'll cover it in, in, a, in a basic way right now. Okay, so I've already talked about this a little bit. Transcription, like DNA replication. It's synthesis in the five prime to three prime direction. We only make one of the two strands, okay? So here's a piece of DNA, and it's got a promoter on it. A promoter is a sequence that recruits RNA polymerase. It's a sequence that has evolved to be recognized by RNA polymerase, specifically by sigma, okay? So here's RNA polymerase, okay? Over here, here's sigma. They bind together, and together sigma is able to recruit RNA polymerase to the promoter. Okay? And we call that the closed complex. So you've got RNA polymerase with sigma bound to a promoter, and that transitions into what we call an open complex when the strands at the promoter are melted. If you want to access that genetic information in the nucleotides to be able to template RNA synthesis, you've got to pull those strands apart, right? Similar to kind of what you were thinking about with DNA replication. If you're gonna use the A on the DNA to put in a U on the RNA, well, then you've got to have access to that Watson-Crick face, and you're gonna be making Watson-Crick face pairs the same as you did during DNA replication. So RNA polymerase and sigma conspire to pry these strands apart, okay? And once that happens, we move from what's called a closed complex to an open complex, Okay. Once you've made an open complex, transcription can initiate. And there's this kind of slow, uh, what we call promoter clearance. The polymerase actually has a bit of trouble getting off the promoter. But once it's off the promoter, it chugs along the DNA pretty quickly and, and makes the RNA. Once it has cleared the promoter, sigma can fall off. It's not needed anymore, right? Sigma was used to help direct the polymerase to the promoter. Once it's cleared the promoter, sigma can fall off. A new protein will bind called Nose. Okay, we're going to talk about what Nose does so much. Uh, Until the polymerase gets to what's called the terminator, which we'll talk about in the next few slides. The terminator is the signal for polymerase to stop transcribing, and you've now made your RNA transcript. So the promoter and the terminator tell RNA polymerase where to start and stop, respectively. And sigma is important for directing that uh, polymerase to the promoter. Now importantly, and we'll talk about this uh, on the next slide, there's more than one sigma in E. coli. Okay? Sigma-70, what we call sigma-70, this is the normal, quote-unquote, normal sigma. When cells are growing happily without any stresses, they're floating along in your colon, and there's not really anything strange happening. Well, sigma 70 is there to kind of kind of keep all the general genes on at the regular level. Okay? However, there may be times when E coli undergoes a stress. For example, you may have influenza or something and now you have a fever and your body temperature isn't 37 anymore. It's 39 or even 40. Well, that's also stressful for E coli. And so What E. coli can do is, when it senses that, what we would call a heat shock, it will synthesize a new sigma that recognizes different promoters. And those promoters will be upstream of genes that help E. coli deal with heat stress, right? So uh, this is a table of the known sigma subunits of E. coli. This is the one we talked about, uh, sigma 70, right, sigma 70. It's called sigma-70 because its um, molecular weight is approximately 70 kilodaltons, okay? It's very abundant in the cell. Uh, it makes up, on normal conditions, about 78% of the polymerases have a sigma-70 on them. But you're going to have other sigmas that will come on uh, and do things under certain conditions. So, for example, if, you're undergo- if you have a fever and you're undergoing a heat shock, it's going to make E. coli is going to make more of this sigma 32, which is going to uh, displace sigma 70 from uh, the polymerase. You can see the KDs here. Uh, the KD for sigma um, 32 is lower; it's it's a higher number, which means the affinity is lower. But if the E. coli starts making a lot of it, normally it's kept at very low levels. But if it makes a lot of it, then this is going to, at a certain level, displace some of the sigma 70 on RNA polymerase and you're gonna get transcription of genes that are recognized, whose promoters are recognized by this sigma instead of the promoters that are recognized by this sigma. So you're gonna get transcription of heat chalk genes. And so this is the way uh, bacteria, one of the ways in which they can adapt their genetic programs to what's happening around them. Okay? And various sigma subunits have various hypothesized functions for dealing with various stresses. I don't want you to memorize these and which sigma they go with although I did mention the heat shock one. Okay, yeah. That's right, so depending on which sigma binds to RNA polymerase, RNA polymerase is gonna be directed to promoters with different sequences. Each sigma has its favorite promoter it likes to bind to. So if sigma 70 is not the one that binds to RNA polymerase, if this sigma 32 does, it's gonna direct RNA polymerase to a different promoter. And the promoter recognized by sigma 32, those are all genes that help E. coli deal with heat shock, right? So you can imagine how the program of expression that's gonna be directed by the various sigma factors is gonna help E. coli deal with various stresses. So here's your typical uh, E. coli transcription unit. Um, Basically this is the DNA up here. The uh, region on the DNA that recruits RNA polymerase is called the promoter. The region of uh, DNA that causes, tells RNA polymerase to stop is called the terminator. I just want to zoom in a little bit on the promoter here. The promoter in E. coli is broken down into three pieces. Plus one is start. By definition, the first nucleotide that RNA polymerase makes, we always call that nucleotide plus one, both on the RNA and on the DNA. So the DNA, there's a nucleotide on the DNA that templates the first nucleotide of RNA. So on the DNA, we'll call that, with respect to the gene, we'll call that plus one. And then on the RNA, we also call that plus one. A little bit upstream, upstream, meaning so the 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 polymerase is gonna go this way, right? It's gonna go downstream, it's gonna move, start here and move go this way. So five prime on the uh, coding strand to plus one, we call that upstream. Uh, again, you wanna kinda have that nomenclature handy to you with respect to kind of which ways we're talking about. Remember there's always a direction to Replication and transcription, and typically, uh, further 3 prime is downstream, and further 5 prime is upstream because things go in the downstream direction, like a river. Further upstream from plus one, there's this what we call this minus 10 region and minus 35 region. They're important because they have sequences that are recognized by sigma. Okay, so the sequences that sigma is looking for to direct the start of transcription are around here. And so, for example, sigma 70 is going to recognize sequences here, bind here recruit RNA polymerase here, and this is where, in and around here, is where the DNA strands are going to be pulled apart to form the open promoter complex, and that's where uh, RNA transcription is going to begin. And then it goes down the DNA until it gets to the terminator. We'll talk about the terminator in a couple slides. And at the end of that, you're going to have an RNA that looks like this. It's going to start with a 5' prime triphosphate. Why a 5' triphosphate? Well, the first nucleotide, remember, doesn't get added on to a previous one. Remember, RNA can start from nothing. And we lost the beta and the gamma phosphate on subsequent nucleotides when they're linked to the three prime hydroxyl of the preceding nucleotide. Well, the first one wasn't linked to a preceding nucleotide. It just started from nothing. So it keeps its beta and gamma phosphate. Okay, so the first nucleotide still has its triphosphate on it, all right? And then there's gonna be a space between plus one. So this is plus one. And then there's a space between plus one and the first AUG, right? AUG is where translation's gonna start. Actually, let me... uh, There's gonna be a space between plus one and a AUG. The first AUG is not necessarily where translation will start. AUG is where you're gonna start the first amino acid for the protein that's gonna be made. AUG codes for methionine, which is always the first amino acid. This may or may not be the first AUG after plus one, but certainly there is an AUG near the five prime end of the message where the ribosome is gonna start translating. It's gonna translate down through here until it gets to what we call a stop codon. And we'll talk about this a little bit next class. It gets to a stop codon, stops translating, and then there's gonna be more stuff after the stop codon to the three prime end of the message. So basically, don't get confused in thinking that right after plus one is where the ribosome starts. It's not. There's a a region here between plus one and the start codon, and there's a region here between the stop codon and the end of the message. Okay? We call this region here, and I'll, I'll bring this up again next class, this region here between plus one and the AUG, we call that the five prime untranslated region. It's five prime, and the ribosome doesn't translate it. So we came up with the very original name, five prime untranslated region, and this is the three prime untranslated region, okay? In between the start and the stop codon is the translated region, right? So that's what's translated into the protein. Questions on that? Yeah. This is just referring to the uh, three phosphates on the five prime and. So this first plus one nucleotide kept all three of its phosphates, alpha, beta, and gamma, because this one wasn't added to a preceding nucleotide, right? It's the only one that keeps its phosphates. All the other ones after this, because they're added to a nucleotide before it, they lose their beta and their gamma, and the alpha one is the one that's put into the phosphodiester backbone. And so if you're looking for where transcription starts, this is a very handy thing to look for. Right. Only the first nucleotide still has its gamma phosphate and its beta phosphate. So this is the way uh, transcription terminates at a terminator. Uh, Some transcription relies on this factor called rho, Greek letter rho. Some transcription does not rely on rho. So there's basically two types of termination in E. coli, what we call row independent termination and rho dependent termination. Okay, so we'll cover rho independent termination first. This is the one that does not need a uh, row to stop. So your RNA polymerase is chugging down the RNA, chugging down the DNA, making RNA. Da, 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 da. And what happens is in the RNA that is coming out of RNA polymerase, we talked about how RNA can form structures, right? hairpins, bulges, that type of thing. As the RNA comes out, around a terminator, the sequence of the RNA has evolved to want to form a nice hairpin, okay, which is shown here, right. So, and why does it do that? Well, it evolved to do that. I mean, the, the sequence of the DNA has evolved to, for RNA polymerase to terminate here. To be able to do that, the RNA sequence has evolved to form a hairpin in and around the terminator, okay? And so what happens is, when this hairpin forms in the newly made RNA, think of it as, um, you know, if this is the RNA that is coming out of RNA polymerase, and this arm is complementary in sequence to this arm, well then when it comes out of RNA polymerase, they're gonna wanna hybridize to one another, so they do this, right? And when they do this, it's like they're pulling a bit on either end, right, so uh, you've got the, RNA in the active site of the enzyme here, okay, that's being transcribed, and when the hairpin comes out, it kind of pulls a bit. You see how the amount of RNA-DNA hybrid here is less than the amount of RNA-DNA hybrid here? It's because when the hairpin formed, it kind of yanked on the RNA on this end, and it pulled it out of the active site. So transcription at that point stalls, or pauses, okay? The other thing that has evolved in a row, independent terminator is when that happens, the sequence between the DNA and the RNA is very AU rich, okay? And we talked about that. We talked about how AU or AT-based pairs are much less stable than GC-based pairs. And so what happens is when there's very little RNA-DNA hybrid in the active, in the enzyme and it's AU-rich, well, this just can't hang on anymore. The RNA just falls off, and so the RNA floats away, and you get your termination of transcription. So the combination of that, the shortening of the RNA-DNA hybrid in the active site, and the um, relative weakness, or or, uh, lack of complementary, or the AU-richness of what's in that sequence causes the RNA to dissociate from the DNA, and you and you terminate in that way, okay? So that's how Rho-independent termination happens. Rho-dependent termination, there's none of, well, there's some of this, we're not gonna get into that, but in Rho-dependent termination, if you don't have Rho, if you don't have this Rho helicase, then when the RNA polymerase, uh, In the absence of Rho, the RNA polymerase will just keep transcribing. You know, it gets to where it was supposed to terminate, and it just keeps going. So now you're transcribing DNA you weren't supposed to transcribe. But what happens in the presence of Rho is the RNA... the polymerase transcribes down the DNA, the RNA comes out, and a sequence comes out that recruits Rho. It's called this RUT site. It recruits Rho, and once Rho is recruited to the newly made RNA, it starts chasing after the polymerase. It moves down the newly made RNA, and it's faster than the polymerase. Okay, so the polymerase is going down the DNA this way, Rho is also going this way, and it's faster than the RNA polymerase, and eventually it catches up to it. And when it catches up to it, it knocks the RNA polymerase off the DNA. And that's what causes termination in the context of a Rho-dependent terminator. But Rho is only gonna do that when the RUT site comes out, right? So basically until this sequence emerges from the polymerase, because the polymerase transcribed that site on the DNA, transcribes that site on the DNA, it comes out on the RNA, that recruits the helicase, and the helicase chases after the polymerase until it knocks it off. So you can imagine that if the helicase is not, if Rho is not there, the polymerase just keeps going. And that's actually the way that Rho was discovered. Uh, They showed that they depleted a, a, a factor from E. coli, and all of a sudden polymerases, all these genes just didn't terminate anymore. Is that relatively clear? Yeah. Yeah. Here? This is just a three prime hydroxyl. A free three prime end. Up here? Over here. Here. Does it what? So this this here becomes the three prime end of the messenger. Artery. Yeah. This last nucleotide put in before it was yanked out of the active site. So this is also U rich in here. I mean, it says U U U U, but there's also U's here. Okay. So I'll we'll talk a little bit about transcription now in eukaryotes. There's a couple things that you want to remember, and it's it's. Uh, critical when you're talking about, and even in the lab, this matters a lot when you're talking about how you're gonna do experiments and how you're gonna try to set things up for an experiment to work. This is the way transcription and translation looks like in a prokaryote, like E. coli. The defining feature of a prokaryote is that it doesn't have a nucleus, right? There's only just a big bag of cy- there's only cytoplasm. The DNA's in the cytoplasm. And so, as you got the circular DNA chromosome, you have transcription of the messenger RNA. And even as the messenger RNA has not yet been finished, it, this has not even yet been finished transcribing, the polymerase is not even at the terminator yet. Okay? Even, just as the five prime end of the message comes out of polymerase, ribosomes are jumping onto it and, and they're translating it. And sometimes that's really important for, the, for gene regulation. The fact that transcription and translation in prokaryotes are coupled, meaning they can occur at the same time. Transcription of this messenger RNA has not even yet finished, and you're already translating it into protein. Okay, because they occur in the same compartment. So that's one major difference between prokaryotes and eukaryotes. In eukaryotes, we have a nucleus, right? So transcription occurs in the nucleus, translation occurs in the cytoplasm. So they can, bless you, they can't occur at the same, they can't occur at the same time, right? You've got Transcription in the nucleus. And then the messenger RNA is synthesized and that needs to be exported to the cytoplasm, right? And it's in the cytoplasm where you have translation. Okay, so they are uncoupled. So there's actually a lot of mechanisms of gene expression that happen in prokaryotes because they're coupled that don't happen in eukaryotes because they're not coupled. Right, And we're gonna talk maybe about a few of those. So that's one major difference between prokaryotes and eukaryotes, this coupling between uh, these processes in prokaryotes and the lack of them being coupled in eukaryotes. The other difference is, in eukaryotes, messenger RNAs undergo processing, which we're going to talk about now. Okay, So what do I mean by processing? Okay, sorry. Before I get to processing, I'm going to talk a little bit about promoters in eukaryotes. We talked about the minus 10 and the minus 35 in prokaryotes. In eukaryotes, this is the way a pulse... Mm. Hang on, hang on, oh, I'll get to that in a second. Um, In eukaryotes, this is the way a gene looks for uh, RNA that's going to be transcribed by RNA polymerase II. So one thing that we're going to talk about in a couple slides is um, different types of genes are transcribed by different polymerases in eukaryotes. In prokaryotes, I already said, there's only one polymerase, RNA polymerase. But in eukaryotes, you've got RNA polymerase 1, RNA polymerase 2, and RNA polymerase 3. And RNA polymerase 2 is the one that transcribes the messenger RNAs. And this is the way a Pol 2 promoter looks. We're not gonna cover the Pol one promoter and the Pol 3 promoter. You will in 3130 if you take it. Um, But this is the way it looks. Just like you had a minus 10 and a minus 35 in prokaryotes. In eukaryotes, you have what's called a tata box. That occurs around nucleotide minus 30 and you have what's called an initiator sequence around plus 1 and these are the sequences that RNA polymerase 2 is that RNA wow that RNA polymerase 2 is looking for okay it goes pyrimidine pyrimidine so pyrimidine is on the dna it's t or c right the, the abbreviation for pyrimidine is y and the abbreviation for purine is r so it's basically on the dna uh, t or c T or C, A, any nucleotide, A or T, T or C, T or C. Okay. And so this is generally what RNA polymerase 2 is looking for, to start transcription. And then there are various regulatory sequences, and that gets very complex, and we're not going to talk about that so much. But there are lots of sequences you can have upstream of this, and in some cases even downstream, but we're not going to get into that various sequences that are going to help recruit RNA polymerase to, to genes under this condition or that condition. So, this is your summary of how PAL2 works uh, in eukaryotes. Again, I'd like you to kind of know this at the level that I cover it right now, because if you take 3130, we're going to actually, you're going to think, oh, I'm so glad I don't have to go into this in such great detail. Well, you don't have to go into great detail now. Uh, if you take 3130, you're going to be real sick of this. But it's actually very interesting, I find, and, and cool, but yeah, it's, it's a bit intimidating. So basically, um, one of the things I want you to bear in mind, okay, so again, we've got the DNA here, and it's got this Paul II promoter on it. The first thing that happens is the Tata box is recognized by this protein called Tata binding protein, TBP, here. and this kind of initiates an assembly process, okay? In prokaryotes, you know, sigma was on RNA polymerase, or at least it was, it came on with RNA polymerase at the promoter, whereas in eukaryotes, this is kind of, you know, TBP comes on well before RNA polymerase, and then there are other transcription factors, TF stands for transcription factor, transcription factor two, meaning RNA polymerase two, TF2B, TF2E, TF2A, there's kind of an assembly of transcription factors at the promoter, okay? It's kind of this one after the other building of a transcription complex at the promoter, which is a bit different than prokaryotes, where it was just RNA polymerase and sigma, okay? So you assemble this kind of big transcription complex at the promoter in eukaryotes until you get something that looks like this. We call this the pre-initiation complex, and this is the closed pre-initiation complex. That then, similar to what we talked about in prokaryotes, you got unwinding of the strands, so you transition from a closed pre-initiation complex to a open pre-initiation complex. At that point, point, some of these transcription factors can come off. Similar to what happens in um, prokaryotes, To get robust transcription, you need to clear the promoter. We talked about how clearing the promoter in prokaryotes is kind of slow. Clearing the promoter in eukaryotes is also kind of slow, and it's actually regulated. There's a subunit of RNA polymerase that gets phosphorylated. That's what these little phosphates are. And if RNA polymerase is not phosphorylated, it won't clear the promoter. It'll just stay at the promoter in this kind of open promoter complex, not doing much. And so this is a level of regulation that happens in the cell. Whether or not the polymerase clears promoters or stays stuck on promoters is actually regulated. There's a kinase that comes along and phosphorylates RNA polymerase, and once that RNA polymerase is phosphorylated, it's now, we say it's licensed, it's cleared, it's permitted to clear the promoter. Once it clears the promoter, it transitions into elongation, and then it's just able to go down uh, the RNA until it gets to a terminator, and then there are termination factors that come in and basically knock RNA polymerase off. So there's a couple couple of concepts I want you to kind of understand here, and those complexes are summarized here on the right-hand side. There's this kind of loading of many factors on the DNA to start transcription. You form this pre-initiation complex that's closed. That transitions to an open pre-initiation complex. Phosphorylation of RNA polymerase occurs to promote promoter clearance. Once the promoter is cleared, you move into elongation and the polymerase is now licensed to go basically down the DNA until it gets to a terminator, at which point termination factors come on and knock it off. Is that relatively clear? So, um, This will uh, lead into a little bit to what I was talking about those three different types of RNA polymerases, but I also want to talk a little bit about some drugs that are used to study transcription. Three different drugs. Uh, You have rifampicin. This inhibits initiation of RNA synthesis. Okay. Alpha-amanatin, which we'll talk about down here. alpha manitin is a kind of a famous poison. if you pick your own mushrooms, this is what you want to be careful about, okay? Mushrooms you buy at frills will not have this in it, but mushrooms that uh, you pick in the field may, and it's very toxic, so you want to be careful about that. The way alpha-amanitin works is that it binds to RNA polymerases and inhibits them to varying degrees, and we'll talk about that in here. And then you've got actinomycin D. This is an inhibitor of transcription that inhibits the elongation phase these it was first figured out that you, um eukaryotes have three rna polymerases by virtue of their sensi- their varying sensitivity to alpha manatin okay um what they found was that they were doing rna transcription reactions in vitro and they would add a certain amount of alpha manatin and they would lose some transcription but not all of it. all right they still had more transcription but not Complete loss of transcription. Then they'd add a little bit more alpha-amanatin, and then they would lose a new level of transcription, but again, not all of it. And then there was a residual level of transcription that it didn't matter how much alpha manatin they added, they never inhibited it. And so they called the uh, transcriptional activity that was completely insensitive to alpha manatin. They hypothesized that was done by an RNA polymerase that they called Pol 1, and then they had this inhibition of um, alpha of RNA polymerase by high concentrations. That was the medium one. That was Pol 3. Sorry, kind of these are not in the order I said. Sorry about that. So the one that's completely insensitive is Pol 1. The one that uh, is strongly inhibited by alpha-manitin, that's Paul 2 so that's the one where you add just a little bit of alpha-manitin and you lose transcription. And then this middling one, the middle one, you can inhibit it, but you need more alpha-manitin to it, Paul PUL3. Okay. So uh, the order of uh, the three polymerases with respect to their alpha-manitin sensitivity, most sensitive is two, medium sensitive is three, and insensitive is, is one. Right. So the question is about the activity of these drugs in bacteria versus eukaryotes. It's a good question. I'm not aware that alpha-manitin inhibits transcription of prokaryotic polymerases. Certainly rifampicin does. Rifampicin is extensively used to study prokaryotic transcription. I'm not even sure whether rifampicin does eukaryotic ones, to be honest. Certainly alpha manatin inhibits eukaryotic ones, and rifampicin inhibits prokaryotic ones, as does ectinomycin D. Uh, But it's not clear to me that these are used as antibiotics, per se. Maybe, I'm not sure. Yeah, 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 these are all antibiotics, but the question is, what do they inhibit? Antibiotics that kill bacteria, we call antibiotics. Antibiotics that kill people, we call call poisons, right? So, um, this is an antibiotic, it kills things, it kills you. Uh, but it's not a very clinically useful antibiotic. Um, and this is... So these three different polymerases, these three different uh, polymerases that were partially identified by their sensitivity to alpha-manitin, we call them now 1, 2, and 3. And we know that they transcribe different things. Pol one transcribes the ribosomal RNAs, or at least most of the ribosomal RNAs. Paul 2 transcribes the messenger RNAs and the small nuclear RNAs, which we'll talk about. PAL-III transcribes the tRNAs and one of the ribosomal RNAs, the 5S ribosomal RNA. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about, uh, in the time I have left, we'll try to cover a bit of RNA processing. Okay, And we're going to focus on RNA processing for PAL-II. There is also RNA processing for PAL-I and PAL-III. We're not going to cover that. Most people study processing for PAL-II. Uh, and not Pol one and Pol three, but you want to bear in mind that there is processing for those other polymerases. And in my lab, we're actually interested in Pol three processing, but um, most people are more interested in these ones. Yeah. Uh, the difference between Pol one and Pol three? Well, I mean, they're, they're physically three different polymerases that recognize. So the difference, kind of a bit more of the differences between the polymerases. They're physically three different polymerases that all recognize different promoter sequences, okay? Um, So, we talked about the promoter sequence for a POL2 gene a few slides back, the Tata box and the initiator. We're not gonna talk about the promoters for POL1 and POL3. We could, but we're not gonna. Um, But, you know, POL1 has evolved to be very, 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 robust transcription of long things like ribosomal RNAs, and it's kind of always on, because you kind of always need ribosomes. I mean, there are things that turn it off when you're sick or whatever, but um, Pol 2 is much more inducible, because certain genes are going to be on or off at different times. That's because it's doing the messenger RNAs. Paul 3 has evolved to make the tRNAs and one of the ribosomal RNAs. It has evolved, apparently, to transcribe things that are generally pretty short, on the order of 100 nucleotides. But they're just three different polymerases that have evolved independent promoter recognition sequences, and they basically do different types of of transcription units. And all of these RNAs that are made are processed, but we're going to focus on the processing of the POL2 transcripts, okay? So processing for POL2 transcripts, there's three different... types of processing that we're going to talk about, 5' capping, splicing, and polyatales. None of these occur in prokaryotes, okay? Or for eukaryotic RNAs that are transcribed by POL1 or POL3. POL1 and POL3, they are processed, but they don't get these processing events. That's the general rule. I point this out because I study it. There are some prokaryotic RNAs and POL3 transcripts that are spliced. So people always say splicing happens in eukaryotes for Paul II transcripts. Well, it's not formally true. There are some bacterial RNAs and Paul II transcripts that are also spliced, but it's a completely different system and we're not gonna talk about it so much, so it's like our little secret. So for the purpose of the course, and for every course you would take at a different university, splicing happens for Paul II transcripts um, in in eukaryotes. A more accurate thing to say would be that Spliceosome splicing happens for Pol II transcripts, okay? So first, capping. So what's capping, okay? Remember we talked about how the five prime plus one nucleotide on a transcript has triphosphate, right? It doesn't have, people are looking antsy, but I still have 10 minutes, right? Um, the first nucleotide in a transcript has its beta and its gamma phosphate on it, right? Because it was not added to a previous nucleotide. In prokaryotes, that's it. That's the way plus one looks, because prokaryotes, there's no capping. But messenger RNAs in eukaryotes, that is RNAs that are transcribed by Paul II, there's a chemical modification that happens to plus one, which we call capping, okay? so. What is the cap made up of? Well, this is plus one, okay? When it came off of RNA polymerase, it just had a three prime triphosphate. But there are enzymes that recognize that plus one from messenger RNAs that are transcribed by Pol2 and they modify it. First of all, they put a G on the end of it, okay? This is not a templated G. What do I mean by that? This G, this guanosine is not part of a DNA sequence. It was not transcribed. It was added. So here's the DNA. This is RNA polymerase, and you've got this RNA that's coming out. Here's the RNA-DNA hybrid. Here's the three prime hydroxyl that you're putting on the next nucleotide, and the, the new RNA comes out, and it's got a three prime triphosphate. This is recognized by an enzyme that comes in and puts a G here okay so this G was not on the DNA okay so this is a non-templated G there's no template for this G it's linked to the 5 prime end of the messenger RNA by a very strange linkage we are used to seeing 5 prime to 3 prime linkages this is a 5 prime to 5 prime triphosphate linkage so it's got this is the 5 prime carbon of plus one. This is the five prime carbon of that G, and it's between the five prime carbons is three phosphates, so it's weird, okay? The other atypical thing about this G is that it's methylated at the N7 position, okay? See this methyl group here? G normally does not have a methyl group here, but this G gets methylated, and that's important, because the translation machinery to translate this messenger RNA into protein is looking for that. It's looking for that seven methyl G as a signal for saying this is an RNA that I'm going to try to make a protein out of. Okay. So this is plus one. There's this triphosphate linkage to this G that's methylated at N7. The other thing that happens is the two prime hydroxyl at plus one and sometimes at plus two also gets methylated. All of this together, this strange chemical modification that happens at the five prime end of the messenger RNA, we call the cap, okay? Instead of saying seven methyl G through five prime, five prime triphosphate linkage with possible methylation of the two prime hydroxyl of plus one into plus two, we call that just the cap, okay? The cap has some important functions. Number one, I just told you, the ribosome translation machinery is looking for it to start translating. It also protects the five prime end of the messenger RNA from exonucleases. Exonucleases cannot access the five prime end of the messenger RNA to degrade the messenger RNA because of this cap. So if you've got a Pac-Man that's trying to come in from this end and degrade that messenger RNA, they can't. So this messenger RNA is stabilized by the cap. That's processing step number one. I'll do processing step number two, and then we'll, we'll stop. Splicing refers to sequences that are found in the DNA, and they're transcribed in messenger RNA, but they're missing from the final messenger RNA. These intervening sequences are called introns, right? So what, that, what does that mean? It means that when the messenger RNA is transcribed from the DNA, there are pieces of the messenger RNA that are removed, okay? What you have are sequences on the messenger RNA that are recognized by, um, we are going to talk about it in more detail next class, we will talk about this next class, but there are sequences on the messenger RNA that are recognized by a machinery called the spliceosome. The spliceosome binds to the messenger RNA and cuts the messenger RNA here and here and then puts these two green pieces back together and so at the end you have a spliced RNA in which uh, this is the RNA that's going to be exported to the cytoplasm and translated. There are pieces of the RNA that were transcribed that are then missing. We call them intervening sequences or introns. Okay. This led to Phil Sharp getting a Nobel Prize, uh, the discovery of this kind of intervening sequences. And subsequent to that, it was discovered that some introns don't need a spliceosome to bind here. there is sequence in the RNA itself that catalyzes this chemical reaction. We call them self-splicing introns. This was the discovery, one of the discoveries that RNA can do chemistry. RNA can do chemical reactions itself. Imagine that this yellow sequence folds up into a shape where it cuts itself out of the RNA. That's exactly what happens in these self-splicing introns and that won Tom Cech a Nobel Prize for this idea of catalytic RNA. For the purpose of the course we're gonna focus on normal splicing. That is splicing that's done by a spliceosome and that's done by this complex, which we'll pick up which we'll pick up next class. Okay?